so we are in Mark chapter 12. Our passage this morning is the last time Jesus is going to speak publicly. Uh, From this point on, uh, when Jesus does teach, it's only going to be with his disciples. doesn't mean it's just the 12 disciples, but it's not in public. It's only those who are disciples of his. The context for where we are at is dramatic. It is, uh, it is the day before Jesus is arrested. It is at the very end of his discourse with the religious leaders. After today, after this passage we study, that's over. That has come to a conclusion. It seems so long ago that Jesus was ministering around the Sea of Galilee. We were studying that together. In this final week, the religious leaders have questioned Jesus about his authority. And they have tried to trap him with questions. And the reason they're doing that is because they have rejected him as the Messiah. But uh, not all of them have. We know that Nicodemus believed. And, And last week we were introduced to a scribe who is not far from the kingdom of God. But today we are looking at some final assessments that he makes about religious leadership. And then after that... There is a pronouncement of judgment upon the religious leadership and a pronouncement of judgment upon the nation. So as we were, if we were to study all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all follow the same chronology here. It's all put together in the same fashion, which is the religious leadership has hit Jesus up with a number of questions to discredit him, to trap him, to find some excuse that they can bring before the authorities to have him put to death. And so all three of the Synoptic Gospels are following that format where they are trying to trap Jesus with questions. And then Jesus is going to make a very scalding assessment about the religious leadership. And right after that, when he is in private, when he begins to teach his disciples in private, he begins to talk and predict the coming judgment upon these religious leaders as well as the nation. But today, we are going to be looking at that final assessment that he makes of the religious leaders. And so we'll begin in chapter 12, begin in verse 38. We're going to read this in two different parts this morning. So beginning at verse 38, he also said in his teaching, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want to, who want greetings in the marketplaces, the front seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and they say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher punishment. And so this begins with a... uh, This begins with a, um, a warning. Beware of the scribes. (laughs) Oh boy. Um, That computer over there is doing something kind of funny. Let me check something. (laughs) Okay, so our passage begins with beware of the scribes. Um, This is a warning. So if I was on a diet and you told me that there was a cheesecake on the table in there, like Craig, look out, there's there's some cheesecake in there. That wouldn't be a very good warning for me because I can't stand cheesecake. 
You know, that'd be like saying, hey, Craig, there's a, a big bowl of steaming hot spinach back there. Watch out. You know, so, but this is a warning that is universal. This is really important for us to recognize because when Jesus does these kind of warnings, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of Herod, beware of the scribes, it's because the thing he is warning us about is something that we're all susceptible to. It's something we can all fall into the habit of or following behind what they do. So it's real important for us to recognize that, uh, and we've talked about this before, how it's easy for us to come to church and read the Bible and look at, at, the, at the dumb and bad things that other people do and then not realize that it's something that uh, it applies actually to us too. And so we want to remember that as we study this. So um, my son and I uh, went camping. Is that slide changing? Okay, because I can't see that on the thing. But, but um, uh, we, we, we went camping, and we were going hiking around this uh, incredible gorge and, uh, you know, big drop-offs and cliffs and everything, and very dangerous. And uh, one day we went out and we forgot our map. But we didn't think that was a big deal. And we came to this, this particular trail, as you can see, has some very specific instructions that we did not have. Uh, if you get on down there, you can see that this was a long hike. It was going to take several hours, and uh, and we had judged it by how long it said it would that it would take. So we knew that we had this much daylight left because you don't want to get out there around cliffs in the dark. You know, we have flashlights or anything, and so uh, we kind of judged it well. As you can see, there's a sentence that is kind of key. It says, "Do not go through the gate." Beyond the gate is another road that leads off the park and into the land of lost hikers. <laughs> so you can, uh, you know what we did. We went through the gate. And so Zachary and I uh, spent quite a bit of time finding our way home. And so here in our passage, this is a warning. And Jesus does not want us to follow in the footsteps of these men. So we're supposed to be on guard. In other words, these are some of the things that they're doing appeals to our flesh. It appeals to our sin nature. It appeals to our natural desires. And so it is a warning. In Matthew, Jesus said that they do everything to be observed by others. That's their motivation. As a matter of fact, Matthew devotes an entire chapter to Jesus' assessment of the religious leaders. We looked at what Mark has included, verses 38 through 40. I think that's three verses. Matthew devotes an entire chapter. You can go to that chapter if you'd like. I'm going to kind of run through some of the highlights of that chapter. I don't know if there are highlights in the Bible, but uh, some of the things that stood out to me. How about that? Um, in his assessment of the religious leaders, Jesus begins by talking about how they have, the Pharisees have. Uh, taken the seat of Moses. They're sitting in the chair of Moses. And so they have assumed the position of being the giver of the law and the interpreter of the law. And so much so that they are expecting everyone to follow their pronouncements. What they say is binding. And of course, this was one of the biggest problems because the Sadducees didn't want to be bound by the Pharisees' rulings. And Jesus obviously was not bound by their oral tradition. But they had taken this position, and it was a position that God had given to Moses. 
And so uh, what Jesus ended up saying, he says, well, you should do what they're teaching you, but don't do what they do because they do not practice what they preach. And actually says that. Then Jesus begins to go through a series of woes because they do everything to be observed by others. And each one of these would begin with, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So chapter 23, verse 13, it says, You lock up the kingdom of heaven from people, for you don't go in, and you don't allow those entering to go in. You lock up the kingdom of heaven from people. You are actually preventing people from hearing the truth. And when you can see that someone is moving towards the truth, you get in front of them. You close the door. This is what we have saw happening throughout Jesus' ministry. They were working against Jesus constantly. Trying to get into the minds of the people to persuade the people not to follow Him. You devour widows' houses and make long prayers just for show. We've all seen that, haven't we? Sometimes when you hear people pray, you're thinking, is this a speech? Who are they talking to? Do you really talk to God like that? Is that really you talking to God? Long prayers just for show. He says, this is why you will receive a harsher punishment. In verse 15 of Matthew, it says, you travel over land and sea to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. Now, why are these fellows hypocrites? They're hypocrites because they're pretending to be sincere. But in reality, everything they do is to be observed by people. So their audience is not God, it's man. And I title this sermon, Know Your Audience, because uh, each one of us has to ask ourselves or be reminded daily, who is our audience? Who are you doing this for? What is your motivation? You know, uh, there was an old movie by Jeremiah called Jeremiah Johnson with Robert Redford. It's really good. But uh, this guy had, had, a, had enough of society, had enough of people, and he just decided he wanted to become a, a mountain man. And so he lived in the mountains for the remainder of his life. And, you know, he fought the Indians, and he would run across other mountain men. You know the story if you've seen the movie, but... Very few people uh, are like that. Most of us are very social and we like to interact with other people. And it's important what our family thinks and what our friends think, what people at work think about us. And so, uh, you know, you've always heard of people who have no filter and they just blurt out stuff for, you know, blurters, you know. And so uh, you want to say things, but say it in a nice way or don't say it at all if it's not constructive and all these kind of things. So. As human beings interacting with each other, it's natural for us to uh, measure our behavior and to contrast our behavior with each other and to care what each other thinks. So we don't want to go to the extreme here Do we think that you know, God doesn't want you to care about these kind of things because it's important. You, know, you don't want to be rude to people and, and to you know, say things that you shouldn't and just... I don't think I need to belabor that point, but... Uh, there's a contrast here between people who were doing everything with the appearance that they were doing it for God, but in reality they were doing it 
for the approval and recognition of men. And so it, it goes a little bit further than what we're talking about, doesn't it? So uh, these fellows, they would go around in long robes. They received greetings in the marketplace. Uh, they were given front seats in the synagogue and the place of honor at banquets. And they give long prayers just for show. You know, when, when has this ever happened to you? Have, you? have you ever been to a wedding? Have you ever been to a wedding reception? You know, uh, I've been to enough weddings now to where I've sat in the very front and in the very back. Because the family having the wedding that throws the big dinner after the wedding, they have a certain number of guests and they have a certain number of tables and they begin to put people at tables. And, you know, traditionally, your closest family members are towards the very front and it moves down the row. So I've been to enough weddings where I've been at the very front, but I've also been at the very back. And, you know, when you're at the very back, um, you have to make some, some decisions about the way you feel about that. You know, um, am I offended? Should I be at the front? Do I think that I should be at the front? I know that my son and uh, his wife, Morgan, that just got married, this is fresh in my mind because we just went through this at their wedding. And uh, some people got their feelings hurt about where they were seated. All the way in the very back row, all the way in the very back was uh, the, the mixed vegetables, the mixed bag of tricks tables where they threw all kinds of people together that were important to them but didn't know each other. And so I would look back there and I would see some of those people and it would be like, no, I didn't do that. But my wife and I made it a point to get back there and talk to those people, spend time with them to make sure they felt welcome and appreciated. And uh, when I got a chance, I went to Zachary and I said, Zachary, you know, you've got so-and-so. Oh, I know. I've already talked to him. I'm so glad they came. So Zachary had already done that too. But uh, it's the attitude of those people in the back. Because um, uh, there was a, a man when my son was going to college in Louisville. He was a Christian man. And he gave Zachary a job. And so Zachary would, clo would clean businesses after they had closed at night. And uh, just go ahead and stop it, Alan. I'll start again. All right, so my son had this job working for this Christian man in Louisville, and he would go in all these businesses and clean them at night after they had been closed. And uh, it was a good job, and this man was really nice to Zachary. And he invited him to his wedding, and so this fella drove all the way up from Louisville and he sat at a back table with nobody he knew. He was only there because he knew Zachary. He wanted to honor him and, and give him respect and, and appreciate Zachary for his this special time in his life. Our next door neighbors, a married couple, were sitting at that same table. And I won't go around the whole table, but there's a whole table full of people that had no idea who each other were. And I was worried about that. I was worried about how they were going to feel. And so when I went back to talk to Jim and Colette, our next door neighbors, and to introduce myself to this man who had been so kind to my son, and I found out that they were all laughing and talking and having a wonderful time. 
and enjoying getting to know each other. And so it was all about their attitude. And so this was not the attitude of these men. They had to be seated at the front. And maybe you've been in an environment where someone's like that. Well, Jesus calls them blind guides and snakes. And He said, you guys are whitewashed sepulchers. Your tombs are painted, that are ornate and painted beautifully, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. And He said, you build tombs of the prophets. He said, you build tombs of the prophets. You know, the different prophets who have died. You build these elaborate tombs to them. And when you do this, you say to yourselves and to each other, you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophet's blood. And here they were trying to execute Jesus, looking for a way. And so Jesus looks at them in this final assessment. He says, you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. How easy it is for us to look down on the mistakes of others and not see our own. In the New Testament, God is concerned that Christians will look down upon Israel. God is concerned that Christians will think, well, they messed it up. The promises that God made to them are null and void now because they botched it. It's always been remarkable to me, uh, Calvinistic Christians who are so confident that they are eternally secure, the perseverance of the saints but they are so quick to write off the promises that God made to the nation of Israel. It amazes me. And so Jesus wants us to remember this. When Paul wrote the letter to the Romans in chapter 11, verse 18, he said, Do not become arrogant towards the Jews. You do not sustain the root. The root sustains you. Well, this devastating assessment that, God, that Jesus makes ends with hope. It ends with hope because He says in the future, Jesus is going to return. I'm going to come back. In the future, I'm coming back. And when I come back, Israel will repent and receive Jesus as Messiah. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read it here, but as a matter of fact, it says that their repentance is a prerequisite for His return. Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. She who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wane to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, He who comes in the name of the Lord is the Blessed One. Well, there's one more thing that these fellows do that Jesus has described, and that is that they devour the houses of widows. Let's look there in verse 41. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, I assure you, this poor widow 
has put in more than all those giving to the temple treasury. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she possessed, all she had to live on. Now the treasury is in the court of women. And you'll remember uh, not too long ago, we were talking about some things that happened in the court of the Gentiles. And so as you move in towards the, t- towards the temple itself, you move into another area called the, the court of women. And so Gentiles are not, no longer welcome in this area. This is Jewish men and women. And in this place, there are 13 uh, offering plates. Um, these were big receptacles that, had, uh, that were trumpet-shaped, and so their mouths looked like the, the end of a trumpet. And so you would put money into these things, and you can imagine the noise that coins would make as they would go in. And so if you just threw two tiny coins, it probably didn't make much of a sound. But of course, if you had these big bags of money, it would really be noisy. And so here we see that Jesus is sitting across from this and he's watching this Passover crowd. It must have been an enormous crowd, a long line of people coming and putting money into these trumpets. The rich were depositing large sums of money while this poor widow only could devote two tiny coins that were worth very little. So Jesus called the disciples to him. And he said, I assure you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the temple treasury. All of these people, she's given more than all of them. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she possessed, all she had. In the context, this woman is uh, uh, the victim of unbearable expectations that have been set by the Pharisees. The religious religious elite have set the bar high and she can't ever attain it. She can't ever meet this level that they have created. And what it does is it puts her under this horrible mental state It brings down her self-esteem. And this is a very humble woman. She's a widow, but she's a very poor widow. And so all she can do is give these two coins. So this woman is really important for us to remember because Jesus is making an assessment about the religious leadership. And so not only are we contrasting uh, the money that people are giving whereas some people are giving out a surplus and some people are giving all that they have, there's also the reality that Jesus is wanting to draw attention to the fact that these religious leaders have created a monstrous system that crushes and oppresses the poor instead of lifting them up and showing them that they have value, equal value. It does the exact opposite. And so this woman is giving money under the umbrella of their teaching. She is giving for the right reason, but she's being taken advantage of. Now, I've just got, let's see, one, two, three, four, five points. They're quick ones. There's not much to say about them because they're all self-explanatory. But uh, I'd like to give five things that that stood out to me as I studied this passage. Are they up there? Yeah. Okay. Well, obviously, God wants us to give sacrificially. He also wants us to give. So, uh, God wants you to give. So, that's a given. 
and he wants you to give sacrificially and he wants you to give cheerfully. So if you can't do those things, should you give anyway? If you don't want to do it, should you give? Um, I don't know. I, I can tell you that there's been times when I really couldn't afford to give and I did it out of obedience because I knew it was what I was supposed to do. But it was hard to give. I still gave for the right reason, but I wasn't exactly cheerful. Maybe I can say that. So this is a situation, isn't it? So we're supposed to give. We're supposed to give sacrificially. We're supposed to give cheerfully, but we're also supposed to be giving with the right attitude. Some, may, uh, some believers may not give at all, let alone sacrificially or cheerfully. Uh, they give out of obligation or they give out of the, uh, for the approval of other people. That's where we're starting to move into something different, isn't it? When you're giving out of obligation, your teeth are clenched. And when you write that check, you know, your pen is really pushing into that check, but really hard, you know. <laughs> or you're doing it in a way that everybody notices, you know. Uh, you, gotta, you know, throw that, th when, when Gene comes by with the pot passer, you know, you, you throw it in there like a Frisbee so everybody sees it. I don't know. I'm sitting on the front row. I can't watch who's giving. You guys know that. So uh, I'm not pointing fingers, obviously, but there's a, there's a, a principle here that when we, that God wants us to give, and, he, and you know, sometimes you can't give sacrificially, but uh, it's, a, it's a goal, isn't it, for us as believers to, to do that when we can and, and to make sure that we're doing it with the right attitude and cheerfully. Another thing we notice here is that we're supposed to be generous, but with discernment. To be generous without discernment is not commendable. We are all supposed to be good stewards, and part of that involves discernment. Um, some people will give money to somebody who's begging. Some people won't. There's, a, there's an area of discernment there. And uh, there's a very important point that we're going to make at the very, uh, in just a moment about this. But at the, end of the, at the end of the day, the things that God gives you, whether it's money or your talents, your time, all of these things that God has given you to manage becomes uh, the word that you would use for that is your administration or your stewardship. And so you want to be wise with that. Not waste time, you know. Not uh, throw pearls before swine. When someone has clearly rejected the gospel, you, have, you can try to plant the seeds, but when it's been rejected, it's time to move on. You know, I work around a bunch of guys, you know that, and some of them are open to the things of God, but most are not. I've had some of them, you know. So I don't waste my time beating my head against the wall. And so if I'm going to give money to somebody, I need to be wise. I need to have some discernment. If you're going to give to a charity that's a non-church charity, it's a parachurch organization, or it's not even a, a church organization at all, God expects you to look into that group. Find out what they're doing, whether they're really who they say they are. What's the core value of this group? There's a specific group I have in mind right now that has their name painted all over the country. Before you put money in that coffer, you need to find out what the core group's values are. What it is that they're exactly trying to do. 
Not all of the people that are participating, but the group, the organization. If you're going to give money to a beggar, does that mean? If you're going to give money to a beggar, then uh, think about whether you are enabling them or whether you're really helping them. So God expects you to have some wisdom in the way you handle his, his stuff. So it's things that He's given to you, and He expects you to... Uh, uh, some folks have donated money to this church. And we can, we can dig a big, a big hole and put it in there and cover it up with dirt and wait for Jesus to come back, and we'll dig it all out and hand it back to Him. Or we can be willing to use it. If something happens, and we can see that, that money should be spent for the furtherance of the Gospel, for the health of this church, we should be willing to do it, right? So it is the stewardship that we have with all things that have been given to us, and we have to have wisdom and discernment. Finally, it says we are challenged to imitate the widow's heart. It's very easy for us to, and I realize what well, things I'm saying are kind of stepping on. I know that this is hard for all of us, and so I did this. Uh, it was painful, painful list for me uh, because uh, this one, especially, it says that you know we are challenged to imitate this widow's heart. It's easy to approve of what she did, to approve of her actions, but it's not so easy to imitate. There's a, there's a difference. You know, I mean, God has taken this widow. We're going we're gonna to meet this lady in the future. You know, when we're in heaven, we're going to meet her. And she's going to have a big smile on her face. And so Jesus wants us to see that we need to be like her. We need to see the good things that she's doing and, and imitate them. And this might be the most important. It's not the last one, but it might be the most important. And that is that only God can evaluate our offerings. We can see here that He does evaluate our offerings. He is watching. We see Jesus exercising omniscience here. He actually knew the motives and the bank accounts of all of the people that were putting money in there. He, he knew it all. The omniscience was present and his and the fact that he is assessing it and then looking at it, so he does. But only God can do that. He's the only one. I can't judge you and you can't judge me. No one knows your situation but God. And so it is between you and him and nobody else. And so nobody had better in this church keep track of each other in that manner because that would be wrong for us to do. Um, and if I'm talking about money, which you guys know that I almost never, ever do, um, I just want everybody to know that we're paying our bills. We paid our bills all the way through this COVID-19 when we were shut down. Uh, everybody continued to give, and, and we just did real good. And so this is a good, healthy church where uh, we actually are happy when visitors come in and we are giving out of what we can, and, and we do love each other. And so this is a really good church family. Uh, so I want to commend you guys for, for doing that. So, so I don't feel like I'm up here punching anybody right now. So that's really, that's really good. You know, we're all, we all do this. And so uh, God wants us to give. He wants us to be careful with how we give. We need to imitate this widow and her heart. And we need to also know that God is the only one who can really truly evaluate 
what we do and why we do it. And so in closing, the final one is know your audience. Is it God? Is it yourself? Or is it other people that you're trying to please? Let's remember to ask ourselves what it is that is motivating us in the way that we behave and the things that we do. So let's close in prayer.